here last week, we just shifted gears and we're in the book of Proverbs now, a wisdom book. And last week we warmed up to the idea of what is wisdom and why should you want it? <laughs> what is wisdom? We said it's kind of the art of living well. Wise living is living that's compatible with the way God made his world. And it's not just the way God originally intended his world. Something wrong has happened to the world that's warped it. And so wisdom is also how to shrewdly navigate all the bumps and bruises and twists and turns and tragedies of a broken world. Wisdom is how to navigate the way things were meant to be and the way things are now. Why should you want it? Because you can have all the knowledge in the world, the education, the degrees, the credentials, the little educational titles after your name. But if you don't have wisdom, you can make a devastating mess of your life and other people's lives. It is possible to be a genius and a fool. It's possible to be an experienced seasoned marriage counselor who's been divorced four times. It's possible to be a master philosopher who hasn't yet mastered his maturity or racism or anger. It's possible to be a finance major, top of your class, and unwisely saddled with suffocating student loans that are gonna take a decade to pay back. It's possible to be smart and a fool at the same time, and all of us are prone to these kind of things. It's even possible to be a well-intentioned, good-hearted, biblically-saturated Christian, and yet without wisdom, still make unnecessarily high-caliber mistakes that really hurt. So wisdom's important. Proverbs is always going to say, like, it's going to pick the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the, the most valuable thing in that society, gold or silver, it says it is. Pursue it. Put everything else in your life aside and chase after wisdom. If that's, the question, if that's the case, then how do you get it and how do you grow in it? If you're supposed to want it and if you want it, how do you get it and how do you grow in it? Have you missed the boat? Was this a lesson that you were supposed to have learned a few years ago? Are you too many mistakes in now or too many botched decisions in now uh, to kind of go uh, get back on track? The best news about the whole situation is that Proverbs is a gospel book. It's in a Bible that tells us of God who came in the flesh in Jesus to redeem us and make us new again. And so, of course, there is hope for you. And uh, wisdom is not even something we saw last week that you've got to go looking for. The Bible says wisdom is a person who's come looking for you. So wisdom is not up in some ivory tower waiting for you to get serious enough to come and pursue it. Wisdom has come down in the trenches in the second week of March or the first week of March to pursue you. Even tonight, wisdom's calling out to you right in that seat. So Proverbs is good news for bad people. Proverbs is good news for the girls who keep overscheduling themselves and they've made a mess of their soul because of the restlessness. It's good news for the guys who've botched about every dating decision you've ever made. It's good news for the people who are prone to drink too much and say things you shouldn't say and have to always walk it back. It's good news for people who don't know how to rest. It's good news for people who are inexperienced and naive. It's good news for those of you here tonight who are petrified because you're in a situation and you don't know what to do. And it's terrifying you. This is good news. And what good news that there is a beautiful and brilliant God who's this accessible, who is this accessible 
who is this approachable, who is this honest about what we're like and still doesn't see that as a deal breaker to come to us as we are. This is good news. And Proverbs says consistently throughout the book, if you listen, it can renew you. It can make you wise. Now, a lot of people say, well, Proverbs is not talking about promises. It's talking about probabilities because everything that we're going to talk about the rest of the spring isn't like it's going to happen if you do X, Y, and Z, but it would probably happen if you do X, Y, and Z. Well, there's some promises in Proverbs too. If you incline your ear to this book, God promises you, you will be wise. If you pay attention to God, he promises you will have life. His word's not mine. It's in the very first part of this passage. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it right now, that first paragraph. Look at how he promises you what he will do if you turn your face and listen to him. You'll be wise. Now, Proverbs 9 is what we're going to focus on tonight. It's a short little chapter, but it presents you and I with a question. And the question is this. Will you choose wisdom or folly? Which we'll use kind of synonymously with foolishness or faux wisdom or fake wisdom. Will you choose real wisdom or will you choose fake wisdom? It's not as easy a decision as you might think because of our three points here. Foolishness is deceptive. Foolishness is attractive. We, we step into it because we want to. It's appealing but wisdom is accessible and abundant. Let's read this passage. I'm going to start at verse 1 in chapter 9, and then we'll get into it. This is the word of God that's able to make you wise. Wisdom has built her house. She's carved out her seven pillars. She's prepared her food. She's mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She has sent out her attendants. She calls out from the tops of the heights of the city, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Abandon your foolishness and live and proceed in the way of understanding. One who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. The one who rebukes a wicked person gets insults. Do not rebuke a scoffer or he'll hate you. Rebuke a wise person and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise person and he'll become wiser still. Teach a righteous person and he'll increase in insight. The fear of the Lord or the, the admiration, the reverence of God is the beginning, the ABCs of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied and the years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you, will, you alone will suffer from it. A woman of foolishness is boisterous. She has a lack of understanding and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city. She calls to those who pass by who are going straight on their paths. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's pray. Father, I rejoice. I've been reading this book for many years, and I feel like it's just this year that I've started to see 
This is my father's voice to me. This is where you train your sons and your daughters. This is the school that you enroll your little ones that we might learn to think like our father. Make us wise like your son, Jesus. Make us wise. Give us the grace of paying attention to you. Tonight, there's people who've tuned you out. There's people who think they're listening. Maybe I am, but make us listen. Make us listen. And then speak, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A little uh, side note. If you're wondering about kind of the, the gender stuff that's going on in Proverbs, why is the lady in Proverbs always kind of personified as the bad one? And why does he keep saying, listen, my sons, to your father's instruction? Proverbs was a book written to like middle school or high school boys in the royal court. Literally, it was the king training the future heirs to the throne to think and decide and rule like a king. The New Testament equivalent of this is opened up and exploded to all of God's sons and daughters as he has called you to now reign and rule and manage his creation alongside of him. He's teaching you how to reign. So don't be off-put by the pronouns and the gender stuff that's going on in Proverbs. It was historical context, but it applies to all of us now. I could not read this chapter and not think of something that we talked about a year ago. I don't like to reuse sermon illustrations and stuff, but about a year ago we were going through Jonah, and I couldn't read this passage without thinking of the fire festival. Remember that? I don't know if it's still common knowledge to everybody, but um, it was this giant festival in, I think, 2017. A bunch of young entrepreneurs in New York were basically trying to build hype and momentum for a new uh, business they were starting. Their idea to build hype and momentum was to have kind of basically the world's greatest party on this uh, Bahaman island that used to belong to a big drug king uh, pen guy. And uh, so basically, they, they, this is their strategy. They hire a bunch of social influencers in California, New York, and big urban hubs, and they tell them, here's the video, here's the preview shots, here's the drone footage of the beautiful Caribbean island we're going to be at. Push this through your stuff to build hype. Tell everybody on these dates next year you're going to be there, and everybody who's important is going to be there too. They lined up big-name musical acts. They got celebrities to come to the island or to commit to coming and being there that week. It was becoming the greatest party. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was wanting to go. And the tickets were about $5,000 a piece. So they raised a ton of money. Um, and they started to kind of get the groundwork up and running on this little island to prepare for the event. But almost immediately, problems started showing up. People on the ground in this island were like, there's no way we can get this built and ready in this short amount of time. Uh, you're talking about building a little city for how many people you're talking about. And so the problems just continued from there. And long story short, springtime of 2017 finally rolled around when Fire Festival was happening. And the founders of this company wouldn't cancel it. They couldn't cancel it. There was too much pressure, too much hype, too much expectation. And so the day that it started, the planes started jetting people from LA, from New York, from Atlanta to this island. The problem was that when they got there, people started to realize these people either never had any intention of delivering on the promises that they made to us or weren't able to. Maybe they ran out of money. So instead of these beautiful like cabana huts that were supposed to be custom made for each attendee and their friends, 
uh, they had to scramble at the last minute and they got FEMA emergency tents. And instead of these beautiful little cabana hammocks that they had put up or in, the, in all of the preview footage, it was these mattresses, which unfortunately were left out the night before when there was a huge flooding rain. So the beds were wet, the tents were muddy, there were no bathroom facilities, the caterers had backed out, the musical acts, seeing things implode, all backed out. But all these people were on the ground. So they basically picked them up in school buses from the plane, drove them to a bar on the mainland, and basically got them drunk for six hours while they tried to throw together any semblance of a real festival. People were irate. Netflix titled their documentary of this, The Greatest Party That Never Happened. I couldn't help but think about that when you're reading about King Solomon and he's personifying foolishness and wisdom. Lady folly, lady wisdom. And he's saying both of these ladies are throwing a party and here's how the parties go. Here's how they're promoted, here's who's invited, and here's what happens after the planes land and the people get out. It's the perfect real world picture of what you see in Proverbs 9. Just like the fire festival, Lady Folly was immaculate in her advertising, in the promos, in the influencers, in the messaging, immaculate, perfect. People showed up, people came, but had the same problem. Absolutely no ability and no willingness to follow through and deliver on those promises. No ability and no willingness to deliver on those promises. So everybody shows up expecting the party of a lifetime and finds out you're in the disappointment of a lifetime. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. It is a pretender. It's deceptive, which means it's really hard to spot. You don't know when you're being deceived, right? That's the whole meaning of the word. And foolishness is deceptive. Foolishness is like a TV doctor. Foolishness plays wisdom on TV but just like that doctor can't do you a bit of good when you actually need a doctor. It's memorized some lines and knows how to talk the talk, but there's no substance there. It's an inch deep. And when you really need it in a moment of need, it has nothing to give us. King Solomon is personifying wisdom. Like I said, there's these two parties that are going on and each of these hosts are pursuing random passers-by. So remember this, this, this is a, a paradigm shift for a lot of us. The Bible doesn't necessarily call you to kind of go find wisdom on some mountaintop. The Bible says both wisdom and foolishness are actively pursuing you all the time. This, by the way, is why it's so easy to get into trouble. Trouble's pursuing you. You don't have to go somewhere to get into trouble. Trouble comes to you. It's as easy as just listening to the invitation and accepting to get into it. So these are the two women, foolishness and wisdom. And all of us, that King Solomon says, the simple or the naive, the inexperienced, people who are prone to not really know how this world works and how to live well in it, we're the invites. And the question to you, as I said earlier, is which invitation are you going to accept and which invitation are you going to decline or ghost? <laughs> which are you going to send back and say, I'm there? And which is going to be on your counter a few months from now because it's just not that important. And again, remember, it's not so easy to decide because foolishness is deceptive. It's hard to know when you're being conned. At least for a few reasons. Solomon says, this pursuit of you and me, 
it's happening not like in, I mean, right now there's a lot of tests going on in this very hour. I heard a lot of people who are taking tests right now. And they're in a, a pristine, luxurious environment for test taking, a quiet room, no distractions, perfect focus, a set amount of time. That's not where you're having to make calls to do something wise or do something foolish. It's not that easy. We looked at it last week too, but where are these invitations happening? Where is wisdom calling out to you? Where is folly pursuing you? She says here, in the heights of the city, in Proverbs 1, the city square, the MLC, your sorority house before the social, downtown, in your living room tonight, in the distraction and the ordinariness of life where we miss most things, that's where this is all happening. That's where the con is being played. And adding to the difficulty is this. I mean, that's difficult enough, right? The distractedness, like we've already got 20 things going on, and on top of that, we're being chased by two different people in all this noise. Well, on top of that, foolishness mimics wisdom. Did you notice how foolishness or Lady Folly says the exact same thing? Her invitation is verbatim, word for word, what wisdom's invitation is uh, on, the, on the front and the back of your page. Verse 4, wisdom says, Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks knowledge, she says those things. And foolishness says, Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, listen to me. So they're identical invitations, identical enticements, and they're both appealing to your felt needs. Did you catch that? There's an appeal to both of them because they say, are you confused? It, it, do you need a hand right now? Is life tough? Could I help? Uh, when you hear someone ask you that, if you are in a tough time or a moment when you need insight or help or advice, we're going to say yes. So that's what they're both asking. And they both promise practical help. So what's it like to hear this mimicry in normal life? This this almost identical message that it's foolishness, but it hits our ears as wisdom. It sounds kind of wise or crafty or sensible. Uh, I mean, I just, made, I just thought of a few examples. Uh, there's a bunch, but um, think of how vocational wisdom is portrayed in our culture. People will say things like this, partic- uh, depending on the industry that you're going to go into, whether it's medicine or investment or whatever. 70-hour weeks is just what you've got to do to advance in this field. Sorry, it's hard, but you're not going to be complaining when you're making 200000 a year. Sounds wise. It sounds like you've got to earn your stripes. You've got to you know, put in to get out. Sounds sensible. Work extra hard and get extra reward. But it's skin-deep wisdom. It's foolishness wearing the clothes of wisdom. It's inch deep. Why? Because the world is full of rich divorcees estranged from their children and estranged from themselves and estranged from God because they went into this house and they never left. 70-hour work weeks becomes addictive because you keep getting paid more for it. It's folly. It's foolishness, and it sounds so wise, especially if life is distracting and busy. Or think of how foolishness is normalized in the college years in particular. I mean, we all hear this stuff. We either believe it or we hear it all the time. 
but foolishness in college is glamorized. Wink, wink, have a little fun. These are the best four years of your life. Don't take things too seriously. You can always get more serious about God later on, right? I mean, it sounds like uh, kind of a, a somewhat of a wise, I mean, maybe not a super Christian-y thing to say, but sounds a little wise of like, use your time in the best years of your life to do this stuff because you can always use your time later on to do that stuff. The problem is, four years of living like that, four years of jumping into that, four years of your heart hardening, you're not going to want to get serious about God after. You're not going to be capable of being serious about God after. You're just not going to care. It's going to be the most you know, uninteresting, um, boring idea in the world. But these things hit our ears sometimes as wisdom. So why are we so attracted to the cry of foolishness? Why so persuaded by her appeals? Because she's appealing, right? Because she's really appealing. I mean, that's one of the simple things scripture shows us is like, why do we sin? Because we want to which is to acknowledge, because there's a, it's fun at some level, right? Or it's, it, it does something for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it if we thought it, if, if we could see in the moment, this is going to set me back five years. We wouldn't do it. It promises to propel you forward. Same with these kinds of things. That's the second thing we're going to talk about is the appeal of foolishness. Folly always promises to take me to easy street. It's always helping me navigate my way to the path of least resistance. Always whispering towards drifting, coasting. Just kind of a laissez-faire attitude towards our life. Foolishness loves ease. Let me ask you, think of all the almost laughable, almost meme-worthy things that you've seen people in the news the past few years get caught doing. That you're just like, oh my gosh, are you serious? what did they all have in common? Like when you think about the people perhaps who've been caught in affairs or caught stealing money or embezzling, maybe classmates of yours caught plagiarizing, people lying about accomplishments or degrees they never got, what do all those things have in common? They were all people trying to take a shortcut, right? They were all people pursuing ease in one area of their life or another, trying to cut in line a little bit, as it were. And that's the main pillar of folly or foolishness or fake wisdom. It's the main pillar of her advertising strategy. Verse 17, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And that's the sum of folly's advice. Enjoy the thrill of something you didn't work for. Enjoy the thrill, the exhilaration of something done in secret. Nobody's gonna know. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. It's just a little bit of this, just a little bit of that. You're in a bind, copy and paste. Your professor doesn't even read these papers. It's the shortcut. It's the path to ease. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret, out of the light, away from other people is Uh, pleasant. Ease, ease is uniquely attractive to broken people's hearts. It is for mine, right? I mean, I think it's the lowest common denominator in most of my problems, most of my foolishness. 
Jesus warns us about this ease. He says in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the path is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. He's saying the path that leads away from God is a 16-lane interstate and it's flat with no hills and it's gridlocked. So many people are on it. But he says right after that, um, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So the way, the path of Jesus, the way of Jesus is narrow. It's a side road with lots of red lights and it's difficult. And few are on that road because it's difficult. Let's see how this plays out in our lives in a few ways. Let's look at these shortcuts in a few different areas of our lives and see if this resonates with you at all. If you see, if you detect the seeds of this stuff, perhaps in you. Easy spirituality or shortcut spirituality, which Eugene Peterson, that famous uh, author and theologian, called spiritual porn. Why is it so appealing? Instead of investing effort over the course of years to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm confused. I so want to know you better. I want to learn from your word. I want to, I want to think like you think. I want, to, I want to be able to believe your love for me. I want to be able to hold on to Jesus and have faith in him. Instead of that process, which will empty you of yourself and humble you before God, we're like, I'll just take the next worship experience the next retreat that can hype my soul up. I don't really want you, but I want the feeling. Ease. I don't want the relationship, but I want the thrill of a stolen relationship that's not the product of us being in it together as we work through, as you grow me, as you bear patiently with me, as you teach me and grow me and train me. I just want the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Easy sex takes no work either, and that's why it's so appealing. Real sex is hard work. At least it is to build the safety and the vulnerability and the fragility that it takes for a husband and a wife to be naked with each other and not ashamed. For them to be able to look at each other without an ounce of fear that he's ever, ever, ever gonna leave me or she's ever gonna betray me or think that I'm not enough. That is the work of a lifetime to cultivate. But friends, my heart is like yours. It loves ease. Don't sometimes we just want sex dropped off at the doorstep like a pizza or like an Amazon package where I can, we can pursue it in secret? Skip the vulnerability, skip the relationship building, skip the making commitments before God and other people that I'll never ever leave this person. It's safe to be with me. It's safe to be naked and known together. We'd rather skip to the pot of gold at the end and we end up destroying ourselves and people in the process. Easy spirituality promises you everything and leaves you with less than it found you with. Easy sex promises us everything and leaves us with less than it found us with. Easy fellowship through drunken parties require no effort at all. That's why they're so appealing. That's why they keep happening. So you're telling me that I can drink a six pack in the next 30 minutes and I don't have to, over time, deal with my insecurities and my weird personality. I don't have to learn the hard work of how to love these friends. I don't have to 
feel the heartbreak and disappointment of not getting invited sometimes and, and bringing my heart back to Jesus or letting him work on it. You're telling me I can drink this and all of that's gone and I can have fellowship and camaraderie with my Christian brothers and sisters? I'll take it. And you know, you know it leaves you with less than it found you with. Your friend group is a shell of what it used to be, right? We don't really talk about things of substance anymore. We're not really engaged in each other's lives, lifting burdens, helping, running interference for each other, waking each other up. What's going on with you? We've kind of, we're all in on the joke. I'll settle for the fake. I'll take the easy way. The shortcut's sufficient for me. And we suffer for it. Easy mission takes no work. That's why it's so appealing. We don't actually have to take risks or make decisions ourselves. We just get to critique other people, other decision makers, and say, they did it wrong. I could do it better. It's so appealing because it's so easy. It requires no skin in the game, no faith, no effort, no risk. It promises us everything. It leaves us with less than we had before. Regardless of what this stolen water is in your life or the exhilarating thing that's fun because it's done in the dark, it always leaves us worse off than it found us. And friends, I know we groan because we know this. Verse 18, Solomon says that when we accept Folly's invitation and we let her counsel us and we enroll in her school and let her become our teacher, uh, we get more than we bargained for. He says there's skeletons in her closet. She's like, hey, don't go down to the basement. Why? She's, there's nothing to see there. What's in the basement? Verse 18, but these people who go into her house do not know that the dead are there and that their guests are in the depths of hell. The king is warning his sons and his daughters. This isn't funny. <laughs> this is serious. This has real life, real world, real time consequences. So he says, listen, the hangover always comes. Buyer's remorse always sets in. We always think we're eating steak. And at some point we wake up and realize all this was was bread and water, which is what is on the menu with Lady Folly. Uh, or better yet, we're on the menu with Lady Folly. She consumes us. What she feeds us is just bread and water. Where's the hope in this particular passage? I know you can resonate with being familiar with foolishness. I know we find it appealing. Um, we're all like each other, more than we're different from each other. Remember, though, what I said, that we're reading a gospel book. And the wise one himself, Jesus, shares liberally his wisdom. He doesn't tease you with it. He doesn't hold it back. It's in the public domain, and it doesn't even cost anything. And he says, you can experience the real thing. All that stuff I listed off earlier, fellowship, God made it. It's good. You can have it, the real version of it. Sexual intimacy with someone who will never leave you, you can have it. God made it. It's good. And he can make it safe for you. Spirituality, you can have real soft-hearted encounters with a real and living God who you know loves you but you can have it the real way and on and on and on wisdom is abundant and accessible she loves to share what she has did you pick up on that when her party is being described what's her house like 
It's custom built by her. It's more of a palace that's coming into vision when you think about this place. A well-built mansion. Seven pillars just symbolizing how sturdy and well-built and permanent this structure is. It's not the shotgun shack that Lady Folly lives in. And unlike the fire festival and unlike the party of the fool, wisdom apparently is ready for you. She's done her work. The table is set. The meat has been purchased. The meat has been seasoned. The meat has been cooked. The wine has been improved. It's been mixed. The music has started. The band is playing. The dancing has begun. The invitations have been sent out. She's thought of everything. She's thought of everything. It's the best reception you've ever been to. It's the best reception we've never yet been to that's being described here. And don't you miss it. The, King Solomon is writing of his great-grandson, Jesus, who is wisdom. Jesus has thought of everything. Jesus has set the table and left a name card at it for you. Jesus has sent his people out in the streets to invite you into it. We've got to get this vision of um, wisdom as this philosophical thing or this abstract schoolhouse or Sunday school boring thing out of our minds because when God gets the microphone and we ask him, God, what is, wisdom, what is your wisdom like? He describes a party with drinking and dancing and eating and celebrating and feasting and laughter and learning. That's wisdom. That's Jesus the wise one sharing what's his with you. And do you want to know the best part of all? You want to know the best part? God wants you there. We never presume anything about the people who come here on a Wednesday night. Some of you are Christians and you know it. Some of you are not a Christian and you know it. Some of you don't know what you are. It doesn't matter. Wisdom, God wants you here. He specifically invites the naive, the fools, the simple-minded, the inexperienced. That's who he invites. Now, some of you hear that invitation, you're like, yes, Lord, I want that. You're at a soft-hearted place. God has you on a short leash right now, and you want it. Praise him for that desire. Run and have your heart's delight. Some of you think you got invited by mistake. God, did you get the wrong address? Was this supposed to go to my neighbor's house? This thing looks awesome, but I'm pretty sure you didn't intend for me to get this because do you know how terrible I am at thinking about you or remembering you or reading my Bible? You know my track record with the decisions that I've made. Don't you know how hard it is for me to trust you and you're inviting me to this? And I'm saying, because God is saying, especially you, if that's you, especially you are invited. You're the VIP because he specifically identifies you as who he's coming for. The naive. Your name is on the guest list. Your sense of disqualification does not disqualify you in the eyes of God. And lastly, I want to say this before we finish. Some of you might be checked out. You're not interested in this. Um, I mean, maybe some of this made sense to you, but it's just, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a felt need that it's being scratched. You feel complacent where you are. And that's what these verses in 7 through 12, they're about you. Proverbs 1.32 says, the complacency of the fool destroys him. 
Wise people are people who realize they're not that wise and they're hungry to grow. Fools are people who think they're fine. They're content with just the way they are. They think they know it all. They're confident. That's why they don't take instruction well. It's why they don't take counsel. It's why they don't take correction. They don't need it. And Solomon would say, you're in the most danger of all if you find yourself in a place of complacency with where you are. And he would call you to cry out for wisdom even if you don't feel like you need it because you of all people, he would say, are most deeply into folly's house. You're halfway down the basement steps and he's calling you, get out, get out. What if you are willing to listen? What would coming to Jesus, coming to wisdom look like for you? Um, it would look like acknowledging before Jesus tonight I'm naive, Lord. Oh boy, I'm, du I'm so easily duped. I hear foolishness and my brain tells me it's you, that it's wisdom. That's me. I need help. And you're, you realize that your inexperience, your foolishness is your ticket of admission. Um, that's called repentance. And look how beautiful repentance looks like in this passage, a party that Jesus has still called you to even though you're repenting. That's what you can do. That's what coming to wisdom looks like. Coming to wisdom looks like read Proverbs. When, when Solomon is saying, listen, he's not talking abstractly. Where do I hear God? Do I go to the mountains? Do I like do this in my quiet time? He's like, no, read my book. Read this. Let's not get abstract. Read the next page. Listen to this book of wisdom and you will be wise. Lastly, if you don't know this God and you know you don't know him, but you feel your heart hungry to know him or hungry to be trained by his wisdom, here's what I want to say to you, and I want to delegate it to our friend Charles Spurgeon as we close with this quote. Spurgeon would say this to you if you're feeling this God draw you even now that you don't know. The gate of mercy is opened and over the door is written, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, between that word save and the next word sinners, there is no adjective. It doesn't say penitent sinners, or awakened sinners, or sensible sinners, or grieving sinners, or alarmed sinners. No, it only says sinners. And I know this that when I come, I come to Christ today. I dare not come waiting on some feeling or emotion he's talking about, but I have to come as a sinner with nothing in my hands. So friends, don't go out of here all by yourself and think you've got to go conjure some experience or feeling up. You need him tonight. So come to him as you are and believe him when he says he will meet you where he finds you. And that's where he's willing to start. Let's pray. Father, this is gospel. This is a book you've written to your sons and daughters. It's not be wise so that we can be your sons and daughters. It's sons and daughters already in my family. Gather round as I teach you to be wise. My prayer that in the next eight weeks ahead of us, you would help us to hear this as the voice of our Father. Not as some philosophical book, not as leadership maxims, but the voice of our Father teaching his adopted ones how to walk with him in this world. We pray this in Christ's name.